Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ecclesiastes 2. Ecclesiastes 2, we're in verses 17 to 26. And remember, we left it up in the air last week. Uh, As we were talking through Ecclesiastes, we experienced with Solomon all of the ways that he tried to find pleasure in this life. And he tried everything. He tried relationships. He tried money. He tried building. He tried gardens. He tried learning and knowledge. And uh, he tried uh, substances. He, he gave himself to wine, he says. He tried everything that his heart could claim under the sun could make him happy. And then, of course, we concluded with this idea that, look, don't follow your heart. Lead your heart. Don't follow your heart. Don't. Don't do what you think is best. Do what God says is best. But we left it kind of up in the air because Solomon had experienced all of these things. And then we read verse 17 where he says, Therefore I hated life. He tried this. He tried that. He had all the money that you could ask for. He had all of the opportunities. He had traveled. He had done everything that life had to offer. And at the end of it, he hated life. And we said that this week we're going to talk about the conclusion. We're going to talk about the end result of Solomon's experiment. All of the things that he tried, all of the ways that he sought for lasting satisfaction, and it brought none. And we're going to talk about this from the perspective of what we call today humanism. In the realm of philosophy, modern thought since the Reformation has followed a path along three distinct lines of thinking. From the Reformation to around uh, 1715, somewhere in the mid-1700s, we had the Reformation mentality, a Reformation idea. The Reformation was a spiritual renewal of Europe, following some 1,500 years or so of spiritual darkness brought on through the corruption and censorship of the Roman Catholic Church. It ushered in, the Reformation ushered in a time of renewed appreciation for absolute truth. A new belief in ultimate truth, that there was a higher truth, that there was a higher being, that this being, this truth mattered, that truth was absolute. Truths that transcended human thought and culture, which are intended not to be invented, but rather to be discovered. We are not the inventors of truth, we are the discoverers of truth. That truth is written, that truth is established, and we identify truth, we don't create truth. This mindset laid the foundation for the incredible societal and cultural growth of that age. From the arts to the sciences, there was a passion to discover through ultimate truth the truths of the universe and then to align ourselves with them. This brought into the West what we might call a golden age. Scientists busied themselves discovering God's creation within the context of this Worldview, they, they made incredible discoveries. Mathematicians focused upon identifying the patterns in the created order. And so the field grew by leaps and bounds. The arts sought to reflect morality and human dignity. It was a time where the arts were, um, were, were enveloped in, in beauty and order and skill. Books were written that expressed deep and poignant thoughts on man and his his nature. Works from men like John Bunyan, whose Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most popular books ever published. Literary works of William Shakespeare uh, were written in this time also. In politics, the Reformation ushered in a desire for personal liberty, limited government, accountability, private property. There was a move away from feudalism and absolute monarch rule uh, to something that was far more just and equitable. On the coattails of this time uh, came, however, a second realm of thinking, which philosophers will call the time of modernism. Leaving Reformation mentality and heading into modernism, this time was ushered in by a period that is often known as the Enlightenment. It was an intellectual movement of the mid-1700s where man became convinced that he could have all of the ideals of the Reformation, all of the order and the beauty and the morality and the dignity without God. 
It was a time dominated by the words reason, tolerance, and then enlightenment. This time saw philosophers such as Francis Bacon, René Descartes, John Locke, later men like Immanuel Kant, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Friedrich Nietzsche. As the age progressed, men more feverishly rejected the idea of a creator and rejected the idea of ultimate truth. Though this time also had a great deal of those old values, those Reformation values that saw its way through this age, those Reformation values also began to clash with the new values of Enlightenment thinking. No better case study is there in the consequences of these two ideologies than the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. The French Revolution was built entirely upon the philosophies of the Enlightenment. They espoused liberty, personal freedom, limited government, rejected oligarchy, but from a completely godless perspective. As such, the revolution was extremely bloody, chaotic, and produced really nothing of true value. One set of corrupt officials were traded for another set of corrupt officials because there was no absolute standard. The American Revolution was quite different, wasn't it? While we could debate the merit of the revolution as believers, the mindset of many in America was built upon Reformation thinking, not Enlightenment thinking. Now, there were men, there were Enlightenment thinkers who were leaders of our nation. Thomas Jefferson was not a reformer, Reformation thinker. He was an Enlightenment thinker. Several others in the the time as well. Benjamin Franklin being another notable Enlightenment thinker, not Reformed thinker. They were notoriously anti-God, anti-God of the Bible at least. But the spirit of the movement, the spirit of the American Revolution was one of of, of the Reformation, uh, not of the Enlightenment. And so out of this revolution came a strong, stable, united society. During this age, men began to cast off the God of the Bible, particularly because God was not empirically provable. And that's where the idea of modernism comes from. If you couldn't see it, if you couldn't touch it, if you couldn't empirically prove it, then it must not be true. And God was not, in their minds, in their estimation, empirically provable. The most uh, important element of this was Charles Darwin and his Origin of the Species. This theory gave men the pseudo-scientific excuse to cast off God forever, and they jumped at the chance. And so they did. They sought to cast God off. We don't need God. We didn't need God for creation. We don't need God for morality. We don't need God for absolute authority. We don't need God for our future. Modernism comes into being. And with it comes the inevitable humanism. During the early 1900s, the philosophy of the Enlightenment began to finally push the positive effects of the Reformation out of society. Humanism became prevalent. A philosophy that believes man is his own end. He is his own God. He is his own ultimate authority. It began to dominate every aspect of life. It was encouraged not just by the theories of Charles Darwin and Origin of the Species, but by philosophers such as Friedrich Nietzsche. A man who believed in something called the Superman. He saw that there was, he, he saw the next stage of human evolution and seeing this idea, this idea that the strong destroy the weak, this idea that only the fittest survive, survival of the fittest, he said this is how it's gotta be. And he saw any, any compassion, any pity as weakness. He said if you're old, if you're sick, if you're tired, if you're mentally handicapped, you just need to die so that we can have a stronger Humanity. He considered Christians to be the biggest blight on humanity that there could possibly be. He said Christians are the one thing that needs to be absolutely eradicated from this earth if this earth is going to take the next step forward. He wrote a book called Antichrist where he lamented the fact that he was not the Antichrist. He was an evil man, a product of Darwinian evolution and Enlightenment thinking. Friedrich Nietzsche and Charles Darwin were two of the favorites of a man named Adolf Hitler who took these ideas of the superman, of the super race, and of survival of the fittest, and merged them together into what we now call the Holocaust. Really, these concepts, these pseudo-scientific ideals of survival of the fittest, of Friedrich Nietzsche's superman, became the foundation of every dictator of the 20th century. 
They saw humanism as the ultimate ideal. They rejected the common understanding of human dignity and morality. After all, humans are just another animal. And if morality is just a construct of society, then there's no reason why I should not kill millions of people to bring about what I perceive to be a better end for humanity and certainly for himself. Whereas Reformation saw truth as ultimate from a creator God, and whereas modernism sought for truth, but only truth which was testable and provable, this next stage, this humanistic, pluralistic, postmodern age that we find ourselves in now, from about 1950 to the present, the postmodern age sees truth as subjective. That each man creates truth for himself. And that his feelings and his perceptions can actually create truth. What I perceive, what I believe, what I think, whether there's any basis, is true simply because I feel that way. And so in postmodernistic thought, truth is dead. And this is why man is, this is why society is where it is today. Because there's no such thing as truth. This is why people are so confused about the, even something as simple as human biology today. Because there's no such thing as truth. Truth is subjective. Truth is what I say it is. Truth is whatever I define it to be. And that's why we are where we are. No absolute morality. No right and wrong. The only thing we have left, if there's no right and wrong and there's no absolute morality, is ourselves, right? That's all we've got left. When we talked about the word last week, the week before, the word hedonism. It's a word which means the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. Look, if there is no authority, if there is no higher authority, if there is no absolute truth, if there is no absolute morality, if truth is what I say it is, if morality is what we say it is as a culture, if we define it societally, if there is no great God who stands over all and who has expectations of us, then we've all, we're all that we have. This is all that we have. This time is all that we have. So seek pleasure in what, however you can get it, right? Get what you can while you can because this is all you got. And so a society that has cast off moral absolutes, that has cast off God, has also cast off restraint. We do what we feel like doing because there's nothing else but us. And what we see throughout the scriptures, what we experience throughout history is that when man does what he feels like doing without thinking about an absolute morality or an absolute truth, things don't go very well. And this is where we find ourselves today. The end of humanism's road. This is where Solomon found himself. Why spend time summarizing the last 1500 years of human thought and philosophy with you this morning? Because we find culture today experiencing the end result of humanism. Some 80 or so years after the post-modernistic culture really began to take hold, mankind is beginning the trend toward wholesale rejection of truth and morality. And the reason man is doing this is because his heart tells him what he wants and he sees nothing else but his heart to guide him. He's pursuing anything and everything he wants free from the fetters of moral authority or the fear of judgment for the purpose of finding something that makes him happy. But what is important for us to understand is that the Western world is not the first culture to live this way. This is not the first time this has happened. We can go back to the ancient Romans and Greeks whose philosophies towards the end of their respective civilizations were very similar to our own today. Hedonism. We could go back farther to the days of the judges where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We could go back farther to the days of Noah where we read in Genesis chapter 6 verse 11 and 12. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. On the authority of God's word, when man has, man has gone his own way plenty of times. Man has pushed God out for, as an absolute authority plenty of times. And when he does, when he is unrestrained by the bounds of God's law through wholesale rejection of God, the end result is always evil. 
and is always catastrophe for that civilization, for that culture, for that society. And that brings us to today's study in Ecclesiastes. Last week we spent our time together considering Solomon's life, his experiences. He set out to prove the claims of his heart that somehow lasting satisfaction could be found in the things which were under the sun, free from the moral and ethical constraints and the promises of the true and living God. He threw himself into everything that he could possibly throw himself into, into building, into growing, into entertaining, into amusement, into collecting, into amassing, into investing, into learning, into enriching, into traveling, into laboring, looking for that which would bring him lasting satisfaction. And what he found was that it was all empty. That none of these things, even when he combined them all together, was sufficient to bring him lasting satisfaction. And so we read in verse 16, Solomon says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. He uses those two words, which we've seen time and time again now, vanity, lacking that which is necessary for lasting satisfaction, and vexation of spirit, a strive of one's spirit. And take note once again, the contrast for our consideration being that which is under the sun. Solomon lived within the context of these human ambitions, these endeavors, these enjoyments apart from God. He wasn't enjoying them as gifts from God. He was enjoying them for what they themselves could offer. He considered them in their own context for what they themselves could give. And he found it, he says, Empty. And we remarked last week that this is the kind of world in which we live today, right? In a world where God is taken out of the picture and we only do what we've got. And so men seek to fulfill their happiness, their contentment, their satisfaction with what they've got. So they seek stuff. They seek fulfillment in stuff. We have religion. Maybe they're seeking fulfillment in religion. We have relationships. They seek to fulfill, they seek to find fulfillment through relationships. We have amusements. They seek to find fulfillment in amusements. And the question is, where has this led our society? This materialistic, hedonistic society in which we live, what path has it taken us? Where has this philosophy brought us as a society and a culture? And in order to answer this question, all we need to do is figure out where it took Solomon. Because where it took Solomon is where it takes everyone who pursues these ends. And that's what we find today in verses 17 through 26 of Ecclesiastes 2. So Solomon writes this in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Solomon says, after all of this, after all the building, after all of the accomplishments, after all of the money, I hated life. He found in it no satisfaction, so he hated it. The things which were done, in which he did find happiness. He found happiness. He found amusement. He found uh, some degree of enjoyment in these things. He, he enjoyed the building projects. He enjoyed the learning. He enjoyed the fun. He enjoyed the music. But they became a grief to him because they didn't last. There was no lasting satisfaction. It came and it went. It was enjoyed for what it was, but it was nothing more than that. He found that this, these elements of life were empty to provide something lasting. It's like when you buy that new thing, right? It's like when you get that new thing. I don't know if it's a new car or a new computer or a new fishing rod or a new boat or a new Uh, phone or whatever it is, you get that new thing and and you're like, this is great, I love this thing. And then in a couple of weeks, it just kind of becomes a thing, right? You get a new car and you first, you park all the way back in the very back of the parking lot because you don't want it to get dinged. But by month number two or three, convenience overrides that, right? And you're parking and because it's fine now. It's, It's not new anymore. It's lost that little something that it had before. And now you just need to get into the store and get out with what you need. See, it it provided enjoyment. There was something to it, but like cotton candy in your mouth, it just melted away and then it was gone. And there was nothing left. Nothing lasting. Nothing substantive. So Solomon then goes on. 
He didn't just hate life. He says, and I hated all my labor. Sure, he hated life because it's sweet for a moment and then it melts away into a deeper feelings of unfulfillment. But what about his labor? What about all the things he built? I mean, he could literally get up every day and he could look at those things and say, I did that. Right? It, it, it lasts a little bit longer. What about the great nation that he had built? What about the tabernacle, which would stand as the glory of Israel? And even today, some 2,500 years later, is spoken of as majestic. If there was no satisfaction in what he did, surely there must be satisfaction in what he would leave behind for the next generation, right? Wrong. Solomon says that he hated his labor because he was going to have to give it to somebody else. What a strange attitude. What does Solomon mean by that? Why did it trouble him that he was going to be giving his labor to someone else? We read on in verse 19. He says, And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Solomon hated life because uh, as he tried to find fulfillment in the things of this earth, he couldn't find it. But then he hated his labor because he hated the idea of giving his stuff that he worked so hard for and that his wisdom had built to some fool to destroy in the next generation. Even though there was some degree of endurance in his labors, they would be handed off to someone else. And who knows, Solomon muses, whether or not all of his hard work, whether or not all of his accomplishments, whether or not all of his achievements would be handed over to a wise man or to a foolish man. Who knows whether it was all for, it would all stand or it would all fall. Whether all that sacrifice amounted to anything in the generations to come. We consider this idea today in various contexts. We look at where our country is today and we might say something like this. If our founding fathers were alive today, they'd be horrified. Or our founding fathers are rolling over in their graves at what, at, at what we have today. And, and we have that, that kind of an idea, right? Or um, the, the, whether it's, whether it's uh, the country or whether it's a business or whatever the case may be, we say what they built is no longer what it is. What we're saying when we're making those statements is that the founding fathers risked everything to establish this constitutional republic, right? They fought a war. They put their fortunes and their livelihoods on the line. If they had lost that war, they'd have all been hung as traitors. They'd have all lost everything if they'd have lost. Many of these men fought and died for the freedoms that they secured and for the constitutional republic that was built. And when it was all done... What came out of their sacrifice was a great nation, right? 1776. We're 200 years later. A blip on the historical map. And all of their efforts are pretty much undone. Nothing like they intended them to be. And as it is with every civilization, if the Lord tarries, this country, this civilization as we know it, will cease to exist because that's how it goes. That's what all civilizations do. And when that happens, all of their work, all of their efforts, everything that they had strived so hard for and given their lives for will have been dissolved. And that's the vanity that Solomon's thinking of. He says, yep, things may work for a little while, but the things that I built, the things that we've done here, the nation that I've built through my wisdom, it might endure for a little while, but inevitably some fool is going to come around and destroy it. And so he said, I found no satisfaction in it. It's not going to last forever. There's nothing in it that will last. It's vanity. He'll leave the greatness behind him. What will the next man do with it? Or the next man? Or the next man? And Solomon's concerns, incidentally, were well-founded, right? His son, Rehoboam. His son, the first generation after him, would be responsible for splitting the nation in two. And so Solomon not only considers his whole life as vanity and vexation, all those things he tried to fill his life with, but even his legacy. He said, my legacy, it's just going to dissolve away as well. And so there's very little satisfaction for me in it. Verses 20 and 21. He says, therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored, therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and, he says, a great evil. Solomon describes in verse 20 when the achievement of his labor began to, uh, began to become sorrow through the reality of those that he would leave it unto. His heart began to despair because he realized that his labors 
would not be able to last. That he was a man of wisdom. That he built this kingdom. It was his determination. It was his vision. Then he's going to leave it to a man and that man had earned none of it. He'd earned none of that wealth. He'd earned none of that power. He had, he had inherited it. He didn't build his fortune. He didn't build his legacy. This man, whom he would leave it to, his success would not be rooted in his own labors, but in Solomon's labors. That Solomon literally said, look, what am I laboring for? I'm laboring for some fool in, in, my, in the future. His wealth and accomplishments would fall to another and perhaps be squandered. And that reality made Solomon pretty, pretty disappointed. He said it's vanity, but he said it's also labor, it's also evil. He said it's evil that all of my toil should be for naught. It's fruitless toil. It's evil. This is a great evil. Verses 23 and 22 and 23. He says, For what hath man of all his labor? And of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun. For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This, also, this is also vanity. He describes his deep spiral. This is his experience. As he had everything, he spiraled into a deep depression. As he considered the futility of his labors. He felt emptiness. Nothing but emptiness. No lasting legacy. And his heart, because of these thoughts, he said, was deeply vexed. He was Tired, he was, he was tired, he was angry, he was, he saw nothing but futility. Notice how he describes it in verse 23. The results. He says his days were filled with sorrow, his efforts were in grief, his nights lacked rest, there was no contentment. He was unhappy, nothing he did was enjoyable, food was bland, he couldn't sleep. He was suffering from severe depression. Now, at this point, some of us might be shaking our collective heads. After all, we know many people who are happy with the simple things in life, right? We know plenty of people who aren't thrown into the deepest throes of depression simply because uh, what they're doing is lasting, lacking, uh, lacking lasting value. Say that ten times fast. A man can still find value in that which won't remain, right? And indeed, these things are true. Remember, Solomon is experiencing the farthest thresholds of human pleasure and he's experiencing the farthest thresholds of human despair in those pleasures for our benefit most of us will never reach those levels of success the levels of success that Solomon did so we must trust Solomon that his experiences as far as his successes are valid in the same way there are certainly plenty of people who find fulfillment to a degree in the things of this life, they are content with the temporary fulfillments from thing to thing to thing to thing. At least enough that their futility of these things does not throw them into a deep and constant depression, days and nights of hopelessness and lack of sleep. But here's what we know also, and anyone who reads the news knows this. There are plenty of people who do fully understand the depression that Solomon found himself in. The depths of that despair. We'll talk about that more when we get to our application. Not everyone will necessarily follow that path of despair, but I think if we could read people's hearts, more people in the, are in this place than we'd like to admit. And I think also that as we consider this spectrum, the degree to which they find themselves in that place of despair is comparable oftentimes to the degree to which they found themselves trusting and throwing themselves into seeking satisfaction in these things that simply cannot last. We'll talk more about that in a few moments, but that brings us to that first, the first of these four conclusions that Solomon will paint throughout the book. I told you that the books, uh, in the book sermon that I, I have divided the book into basically four parts. And in each of those, the first three parts, there's a tentative conclusion that Solomon comes to. And then he concludes everything in that last bit of chapter 12. And the first of these tentative conclusions is found in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 through 26, where Solomon begins by saying this in verse 24. He says, There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, here it is, that it was from the hand of God. Solomon transitions into this tentative conclusion with a flavor of fatalism. 
He says, look, first, there's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that he should enjoy the good of his labor. In consistency with his warning in chapter 1, that, that with much learning comes much sorrow, he sees these things. He's learned a lot, he's experienced a lot, and he says, what I've learned is quite sorrowful, that there's nothing better in these things than just their enjoyment. There's nothing better in eating and drinking than the enjoyment of eating and drinking. There's nothing better in the amusements and the things of life than what those things have to offer for that moment. But then notice what Solomon noticed. That it was from the hand of God. That the hand of God has given us some things in this life. He has given us things blessings, enjoyments. But He has also given us the privilege that we might eat and drink in peace because God has blessed you with the ability that you can enjoy your labor because it's given to you by the hand of God. That you can work hard, but not so hard that you fail to appreciate the one who gave it to you. That you can live life and enjoy it because you see it as something more than just what it is. For the moment, you see it as a gift from God. Position yourself to understand that God made life to be lived, but never forget that God is behind the life that is being lived. And he continues, verse 25, he says, For who can eat? Or who else can hasten here unto more than I? He says, Who could have more than I had? Who can experience life any better than I've experienced it? But then he concludes in verse 26, For God giveth to a man... That is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up. That he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon says, I'm going to paint a contrast here. I'm going to paint a contrast between two people doing the same things. There's one man that's laboring and that he's eating and he's doing it outside of God. And there's another man that's laboring and eating and he's doing it with God. There's one man that's fulfilling amusements and enjoyments of this life without God. There's another man that's enjoying this life in God. And he says there's a difference between them. The blessings of true wisdom, knowledge, and joy. The blessings of wisdom that does not lead to grief. The blessings of knowledge that does not end in sorrow. The blessings of joy that is not keyed into how much we have had good circumstances. That is, transcends our circumstances. That these are gifts that can only be given by God. That they cannot be conjured up in books. They cannot be found through money or through talents or through fame. That there's no amount of human ingenuity that can fool the spirit of a man into finding satisfaction in that which cannot satisfy. But that God can give you true pleasure, a pleasure that is not ends, that does not end in futility. True knowledge that does not end in sorrow. That God can give that to a man. That there are blessings to be given by God. But notice the contrast in the second part of the verse. He says, but to the sinner... To the sinner who rejects the counsel of God, who seeks to find satisfaction in himself alone, these things will never satisfy. To the one who seeks to be satisfied in these things outside of God, who does not fear God, who does not serve God, who does not love God, he will, too, he will labor, he will learn, he will live, he'll enjoy those things, but the gift of joy will elude him. He will gather, he will heap up the money and the things, but the gift of contentment will elude him. Because he's not doing these things through God. The only one who will find lasting satisfaction in this life is the one who stands good before God. And so that man, for all of his labor, the sinner, the one who has rejected God, who has rejected these as gifts from God, will find only vanity and vexation of spirit. And so we, we come to that first tentative conclusion. Enjoyment in life is a gift from God alone, given to those of faith, yet it is still only temporal in scope and in worth. It is temporal, but it can be truly enjoyed. Joy is given to those who live righteous lives, not to those who have material good. Peace is rendered to those who live a life of faith, not to those who have conquered their circumstances. Life is a gift from God, and when we understand this, and when we live like this, then we can find joy in the things of this life in a way others simply cannot. 
And this brings us to our application this morning. We're talking about the end of the road when it comes to humanism. Man's attempt to live and enjoy this life apart from God. And Solomon speaks of this end with his first phrase in verse 17. Therefore, I hated life. And it is here that we're going to park for the majority of our application today. It is here that I would like us to consider. Consider, first of all, the pain of the world all around us. The vanity, the vexation of spirit, the sorrow, the frustration I really want you to think about this. Uh, we, we don't have the most tech literate church. I don't know how many of you uh, read the news regularly and whatnot. Uh, I don't know what, from what sources. I don't know how many of you are on social media and the frustration that is what social media has become today. But have you noticed that people are really unhappy? There's a lot of really, really unhappy people out there. And that doesn't make sense from a material perspective, does it? This nation is one of the wealthiest nations that's ever been on this earth. The poorest in this nation are wealthier than the wealthy in many other nations. You see people going around and they have very little, but they still have a smartphone. And they still have their television. And they still have amusements. Amusements which the majority of civilization has never had the time for. Ever. Statistically... Mobility in this country, upward mobility, is still amazing. The capacity to, to, to move forward, to, to move up in the ladder is incredible. But people aren't happy. What Solomon went through as we read it today was what would be diagnosed today as severe depression, right? Classic severe depression. Depression is broken up into many subsets, but consider this list of symptoms from the National Institute of Mental Health. I don't know if you can read that. Symptoms of depression. Persistent, sad, anxious, empty mood, feelings of hopelessness or pessimism, irritability, feelings of guilt, worthlessness or helplessness, loss of interest or pleasure in hobbies and activities, Decreased energy or fatigue, moving or talking more slowly, feeling restless or having trouble sitting still, difficulty concentrating, remembering or making decisions, difficulty sleeping, early morning awaking or oversleeping, appetite and or weight changes, thoughts of death or suicide or suicide attempts, aches or pains, headaches, cramps, digestive problems without clear physical cause and that do not ease even with treatment. Now, obviously, some of these can go in other directions as well. But if you read that list, that's what Solomon described, right? Solomon described his life and he said, I find no pleasure in my labor. I'm not happy. He's certainly writing fatalistically, right? And pessimistically. He said, nothing is worth anything. Vexation of vanity and vexation of spirit. He said, I can't sleep. I'm not happy. I wasn't happy in this stuff. This is Solomon. Solomon was severely depressed. Now consider the statistics on depression in our country. 6.6% of the percent of the U.S. adult population will experience major depression within a 12-month period. 6.6%. That's 21.8 million Americans. Rates of diagnosis of depression vary based on state. And it goes on to give you several other things. talks about bipolar disorder. Over 80% of people with symptoms of depression are not receiving treatment. According to that final statistic there, according to a study done at Harvard, the number of patients diagnosed with depression increases by approximately 20% every year. What's going on? How are we one of the most materially prosperous countries in the history of the world, and yet people are so unhappy? New York Times article from April 2016, U.S. suicide rate surges to a 30-year high. Suicide rate for middle-aged women jumped by 63% over the period of this study, they said. Increases were so widespread that they lifted the nation's suicide rate to 13 per 100,000 people, the highest since 1986, rose by 2% a year starting in 2006. In all, 42,773 people died from suicide in 2014. And there's a particular group of people that are affected the deepest. I don't know if you've ever seen these statistics. 
Those who are actively involved in some level of deep spiritual perversion have anywhere from 400 to 800% higher likelihood of attempting suicide. Standard population, 4%. Among sodomites, homosexuals, 20% attempted suicide rate. Among those who are suffering from what, what used to be gender dysphoria, now called transgenderism, 41% attempted suicide rate. Now, why have I given you these statistics? I didn't give them to you so that you could smile and say serves them right, or you could compare yourself and say, wow, I guess I'm doing better than them. What I wanted to show you is that there's a deep, deep pain in society today. Why is drug and alcohol abuse so prevalent? Why do people spend so much money trying to amuse themselves? Why are therapists' office literally standing room only? Because people are so unhappy and they're trying to find something to dull that pain, to give them lasting satisfaction, to, to, to give them something that can dull the ache. And you know what? Isn't that what we just read about King Solomon today? Isn't that, isn't that what Ecclesiastes 2 is about? A man suffering from what we would call today severe depression. He hated life even though he had everything that he could possibly want. That his heart could possibly ask of him. He said, if my heart wanted it, I went after it. I withheld nothing. And he pinpointed the root cause. And the root cause, he said, was an attempt to find lasting satisfaction in this life from something other than God. Solomon hated life because it had no meaning for him. It had no worth. It lacked that which was necessary for lasting satisfaction. It was vanity. And millions upon millions of people in this country, that was just statistics for this country, not to mention this world, are right where Solomon found himself. People all around us are longing for true peace, lasting joy and contentment. They are desperate for it. And the reason why we really need to be thinking about this is because for many, many of these people, maybe not all, there's, there's certainly perhaps other reasons, but for many of these people, the solution to their sorrows and their grief and their frustration is with us. You carry it inside of you every day. When you hand them that money or you swipe that credit card at the grocery store, you're standing across from people that are desperate for the very thing you have. They're longing for a solution and you walk in with it and you walk out with it every single day. And it's freely available to them. It's as available to them as it is to you. And this is the point. Knowing what we know is not to be a point of pride for us or a cause for us to judge them, it is to be a point of compassion. Knowing what we know should well within us a great desire to minister to the needs of those who are suffering from the damage that humanism has caused this world. The need is everywhere. Whether we're talking about the men and women who are sitting in the jails and prisons because they desire fulfillment and satisfaction in that which was opposed to what the law would allow them to do. Or your next door neighbor who is desperately trying to find satisfaction by buying the next boat or the next RV or the next TV or the next cell phone or the next job or the next spouse. Or the teller at Walmart who's seeking happiness in people. To the millions that are seeking peace through the emptiness of religion alone without a relationship with the true and living God. They're everywhere. They're all around us. They're experiencing the same kind of thing that Solomon was experiencing. Life has no joy. It has, it's, it's nothing but emptiness. They can't sleep. They're not happy. Food has no taste. They're just miserable. And it's because they're seeking satisfaction in that which simply cannot satisfy. And they may even very well be among our kinds of people. May I give you a statistic about pastors from a 2005 study? 90% of pastors report working between 55 and 75 hours a week. 50% of pastors report feeling unable to meet the demands of their job. 70% constantly fight depression. 50% of pastors starting out will not last five years. 
50% of pastors' marriages end in divorce. 70% of pastors do not have a close friend. A second research study, 71% of pastors say that they are overweight by an average of 32 pounds. 52% say they are experiencing signs of stress on a weekly basis. The leaders of our churches are not immune to this stuff. Your pastor's not immune to this stuff, and you're not either. No one is beyond the possibility of seeking lasting satisfaction in that which simply cannot satisfy, or misplacing our priorities, losing sight of God and His gifts, and in doing so becoming overwhelmed by the emptiness of life or ministry. But far be it from us to ever look outward without first looking inward, right? Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ that explicitly calls us to a mindset whereby we look inward, not outward. Whereby we magnify ourselves, not magnify others' faults. The spirit of looking outward in judgment or comparison is always wrong. And while the spirit of looking outward in compassion is always right and indeed proper, it can tempt us to look outward at the expense of looking inward. And in doing so, we do ourselves a great spiritual disservice. And so we turn our hearts inward. And I ask you this as our second point. Look, what about your own heart? A tendency to seek satisfaction among those things that cannot satisfy. It's not beyond you and it's not beyond me. And such endeavors can lead us to feelings of emptiness, of worthlessness, of listlessness, that are not beyond the heart of even those who love the Lord. Satisfaction can seem very elusive. And in a society like ours where goods and free time are both plenteous, you, you, you don't necessarily have to stay busy enough to not be able to think about it. And there's plenty of goods that even if you don't have a lot of money, you can get nice things. Luxuries can bring with them a heightened degree of dissatisfaction. And that's where our society is today. The man who is busy all day, every day, just trying to live, has little time to ponder whether or not he's truly satisfied with life, right? He has to get up just to feed his family. But the man with discretionary time, the freedom to pursue his own ambitions, is far more susceptible to these feelings of futility. And what about you? Have you found yourself in this place where you hated life? Maybe even hated your own labors because they lacked that which was necessary and you just found nothing in them that was worth anything? You wondered about yourself. Do I have any worth? And why am I even here? Will anyone even notice when I'm gone? Life has no joy, no satisfaction anymore. Are you struggling with emptiness, listlessness, wondering about the worth of your life and efforts? You're not alone. There's not something uniquely wrong with you under the sun. But we call our mind to the point which we must constantly come back to. This is not how God has designed you to live. This is not how God has designed you to live. There's a better way. And God has designed that better way for you and I. And as we approach this concept, we're going to approach it from two directions. First, we're going to consider our verse, right? This, this application point has come up every week, and it will. I'm going to belabor this point until it's dead. Man can find lasting satisfaction. And every week I'm giving you a different verse from the New Testament that tells you that. And tells you that it's found in God. And then we're going to sing a song together after that. A familiar hymn. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us this. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Anything good in you, anything good that comes out of you, anything good that you have, anything good that you want, it will be rooted in God. That doesn't mean it's not going to be material. There are plenty of good material things you can have, but you will get them by the good hand of your Lord. They will be gifts from God. And in being gifts from God, you will find in them something worthwhile. By that same token, when you don't get that which you want, because God has not given it to you, you'll find contentment because you know that if God wanted you to have it, He would have given it to you. And when we are here, when we see life this way, when we pursue our job or our ministry, and 
and I, as a pastor, have to say, yes, we are where we are as a church, but I've done my part, and I'm being faithful, and I need to be content with where God has put us. Or when you in life say, yes, God has given me this face, or this hair, or this eye color, or these abilities, or this intellect, and it's what God has given to me, and so I will find contentment in it. Because we recognize that every good and perfect gift is from above. That life is a gift. That what God has given you is a gift. And if you can see what you have and what you don't have, where you are and where you aren't, what you look like or who you don't, as God's way, as you align yourself with it, then you can find contentment in those things. And you won't find yourself where Solomon found himself. Vanity, vexation of spirit. Therefore I hated life and I hated all my labors under the sun. Finding lasting satisfaction, not in who you are, what you have, but in what God has given you, whom God has made you, and who you are in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, pray for us as your people, that first we would search our own hearts. To what degree have we sought lasting satisfaction in the things which cannot satisfy, and in them have found hopelessness or despair? Help us to, to find in you that solution. If there is any here today that is really going through this ha- a hard time of depression, I pray that you would um, use this message to, to comfort their hearts and um, to seek in you and in your people and counsel through your word sat- the satisfaction that can bring joy back to them. I do pray that you would help us to have an eye and a mind and a heart toward the world that is around us. A world that is not just lost and dying unto a sinner's hell, but a world that is literally dead where they stand. Miserable, unhappy, angry, lost. We have the solution. We open that solution every week. We live it. We tell our children of it. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace and the ability and the drive to help others as best we can. Thank you that Solomon did these things so that we would not have to. Solomon experienced these things so that we would not have to. Pray that you would help us to learn from this wisdom and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.